This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Hey, Christopher. You know, a few weeks ago, probably actually a few months ago now, we ran an early career interview with John Mellencamp. And do you remember it? He's him at his bratty best, and he's really, like, it's early, and so he's... Oh, he had some tood. He had some tood, and he was also very funny in it, but he was also uh, self-defecating, as I like to say, <laughs> self-deprecating with the way that he um, it kind of cuts up himself, so he doesn't take himself too seriously. And, of course, a lot happened from that time, from about 19 to these two interviews, which we're going to highlight for you, and just a few very short clips. And you and I have been talking about this for weeks now, <laughs> Songs We Hate to Love, Yes, and of course, I'm going on about Afternoon Delight by yeah. Starline Vocal Band, yeah, of course. and you're going on about the worst song in the history of recorded music, yeah. even going back to yeah. Caveman Days, which is We Built This City, <laughs> uh, by Starship. I usually replace that last letter yeah, with something else. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But we're going to talk more about that. And uh, Can we and clarify, just mm, for people listening, because mm. we want you to contribute your, your favorites. Absolutely, so for it's sure. Songs, it's not songs we love to hate. That's no. too easy. Yeah. No, it's songs that in your heart of hearts, you know they're garbage. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, you're willing to stand up for them in front of your friends and yes. your, your, your family and other loved ones. That's and for sure. And be called out for your love for this particular song. It could be, I love the nightlife. <laughs> right. Okay, so we will talk more about that in just a few minutes. We also have a really great interview with Katie Lang from 2004. Now, we both have had experiences interviewing KD, and neither experience was very good, but I know we both admire KD's talent, and honestly, the clips we have from her are excellent. So we will tell our stories and hear that interview, and we'll also talk about a new book that you're involved with, Christopher. Plus, I have some cool song facts for you, Mr. Christopher, that are guaranteed to blow your mind, and we also have a great behind-the-hit story of one of the biggest hippie-era hits. But let's get started with John Mellencamp with highlights from two interviews. Great song, Jack and Diane from 1981. Okay, the two interviews are from October of 97 and January of 98. The first one, he's actually in studio with us, and he addresses all the changes that he's made in his life since his 1994 heart attack, so four years earlier. All the changes except smoking. Have a listen to this. Now, you're still, as we sit here and we look at the pack of cigarettes still sitting in front, I'll bet you've been quizzed by that because everybody comes up to me and they go, yeah, I saw him on, uh, on Mike Bullard there. Gee, he still has smoke on the go. And didn't he have some health problems a couple of years ago? But oh, give I me the, you know. Health problems. I mean, coronary heart disease does not go away. No. It's you ha once you've got it, you've got it. Uh, and what you do is they say, this is what you got to do. You got to do this, 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 and this. And then it's up to you to do it. And I do... Out of the ten things I'm supposed to do, I do nine of them, and I do nine of them very well. But one of them, loser, <laughs> loser. Yeah, well, you know, you, you got to draw the line somewhere. You have to have a little fun still somewhere along yeah, the way. That's a, you know, smoking is my only vice. I couldn't have probably picked a worse one. Heroin would have probably been a better vice than this. But uh, you know, that's the way it shook out for me. But I, I still, you know, in the back of my mind, intend to quit shortly. Yeah. Shortly. <laughs> and how long have you been saying that? Four years. <laughs> Four years, okay. Because, uh, well, you're, you're a long-time writing partner, actually. He had a, he had a heart attack, too, didn't he? Mm -hmm. For the same reason I did. And he couldn't, you know, when I had my heart attack, you know, I've known this guy my whole life. 
We write songs together. We're the same age. Went to school together. And what are the odds of me having a heart attack and him making fun of me, you know, for like, you know, I really, uh, I really had poured on the old beef gravy last night, John. And then two weeks later, him having one. That's not, it's like, not a good thing, is it? No. no not a good not, thing. No. Not much beef gravy in your diet anymore? Uh, not very much meat at all in my diet. Really? No, I don't hardly ever eat meat anymore. Oh, wow. Okay, so he says, yes, I, I plan on quitting someday, right? Yeah. And you know how unconvincing he was? Well, <laughs> he didn't mean it. 20 years later, now at the age of 66, he still smokes. And it's awful to know that you know he had so many problems um because of it but he says it's comforting to him and it's also given him the voice he's always wanted oh man and also that story right at the end about his friend how he gets kind of this um thrill out of the fact that his friend who was bothering him who was bugging him for having a heart attack is now all of a sudden lying in bed because he's had a heart attack and john gets this kind of perverse glee from that but they still remain friends they're very good friends anyway Okay, so the second segment starts with him talking about how he likes to change up his songs for the audience. And it leads to other stuff, including how his heart attack led to a change in attitude for him, okay? So have a listen to this. You know, we're we're trying to uh, come up with new arrangements of just about every song that we do because, you know, you got a a lot of people who have seen me have seen me like four and five times, and I want to be able to do something that's like uh, different for, uh, you know, for them. I. I don't think you can go out and play all the time and just keep playing the song the same way over and over and over again. Yeah, I understand where you're at uh, as a musician when it comes to, you know, the same arrangements nights in, nights out. And rather than being the devil's advocate, I'll just throw something at you. I remember talking to the guys in uh, in Yes years ago, and I was saying, you know, I've, I've seen you guys a hundred times, and, you know, I, I just don't want to hear you do Roundabout anymore. I want you to surprise me once in a while. And that's it. And, you know... That's exactly where, where we're at. You know, we, we don't want to, you know, I don't mind doing roundabout, uh, but <laughs> we should do it in a fashion that uh, would be like, oh, that's roundabout. Well, they kind of, they kind of described it as this, saying, look, it, the, you know, our fans go rabid for something like this, and if we were to take any liberties with it, they just wouldn't buy it. And I was really surprised to hear that. Oh, that's bull. I, I take liberties with everything. I did a, on my last tour, I, in the middle of it, uh, a guy in my band rapped in the middle of Jack and Diane. Now, how's that for a liberty? That's fantastic. And the was... audience, you know, went nuts. They and, loved it. And that was completely spontaneous? No, no. We no. no, there's nothing spontaneous on stage. So it's all contrived? I don't think contrived is the right word. No, I, I, worked I, out is the correct word. There you it's go. It's worked out. Yeah. It's planned out. It's, it's planned chaos. And, uh, and, and, you know, people are supposed to see the magic. I mean, shows that people would go see that are just, you know, not... rehearsed, are generally the shows you walk away from and you think, wow, that guy wasn't very good tonight. The thing I've got to remember is is that even though I've sang Hurt So Good one billion times, these people only get to hear this song once every four or five years. Mm -hmm. So I I have to keep that in my mind every night, that this is the first time for them. (laughs) No, I think it's a guy's responsibility. If you are going to charge money to have people come and see you perform, this is not about me. This is about the audience. The audience has to be entertained, have a good time, and when they walk out of the show, they have to feel like, hey, you know, this was a great night for us. I'm glad we came. And see, by having that attitude, I think it's enabled me to be able to go out and still go on tour, you know, 25 years into it. Sounds like you're really excited about going out this time around. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped because, uh, you know, I haven't done it for a couple, three years, and... Uh, 
everything is going great and the ticket sales are great and the response is great and so you know for me it's like i'm excited what else can i be you know if if i if i was you know I, during the late 80s i turned into one of these musicians who kind of dreaded everything and then you know in the mid 90s i kind of said look you know you can either grow up to hate what you do or you can grow up to love what you do and i've decided to be positive about it and and uh it seems to be working out for me right now when i had my heart attack I just kind of took a little different uh, a, a approach to things and started looking at things a little bit differently. Uh, you know, I always looked at my illness as a physical thing. There wasn't anything very spiritual involved in my thing, but that did come out of it for me, is trying to take a different uh, look at the woods when you're in it. Because, you know, I mean, I found myself in the late 80s, early 90s, you know, being real despondent about, you know, my career and and not really counting my blessings. And, and then, you know, I, I would look at guys that were older than me that are still doing it and seeing, you know, some guys very bitter about it and, you know, bitching about their job. And then I think that transcends to the audience. And then I saw other guys who, you know, love being out there. And I decided to be one of those guys that, you know, hey, <laughs> this is my job. I like doing it. And I, would, I liked doing it when I was a kid. What has changed? I'm still playing music. Uh, you know, if anything's bad, it's going to be. It's not going to be me. Do you think, though, that you might have been that way no matter what you're doing? Maybe it was kind of a semi-midlife thing you might have been going through. No, I think what it was with me was was uh, was you know, fourteen, fifteen years in those arenas, mm -hmm. year after year, 150 shows a year, which is which had been my life since like 1981. I had been in an arena after arena. I mean, you know, 150 shows a year, uh, and only being home, you know, about. Uh, uh, you know, in a 10-year period, maybe about 18 months, mm -hmm. you know, and it was just, I just did it too much. And that's why I take a much more casual approach to it. I mean, I was asked earlier if this was going to be a world tour or not. I said, I don't know. You know, if I like the first 70 shows, I might do 70 more. If I don't, then I'll stop. Good for you. Now, talking about home, I, I presume you still lived in, live in uh, Bloomington, Indiana. I'm, I'm in Bloomington right now at my rehearsal hall. Wonderful. What's it like being a big fish in a small pond? I never think about it. Uh -huh. It never dawns on me. I, I you know, I, I'll still go in. You know, I still go to the grocery store with my wife, and we'll go in places. And you know, I'm still enough of a, a knucklehead to be walking in some place and have some guy, and I go, "What the fuck is that guy looking at? Why is that guy?" <laughs> and my wife will go, "Johnny Cougar, gone. Oh yeah, I forgot about." That. Do you think that maybe uh, it'd be the small town people that would keep you more grounded than they would in the city? Well, I don't know if they do, but, you know, there's definitely a lot of meanness a guy can get into into a city. Mm -hmm. You know, every time I've ever been in New York or Los Angeles or Paris, I always got in trouble one way or the other, particularly <laughs> when I was there for an extended amount of time. So I can't really imagine what it'd be like for me to live there. I would have already blown up and we wouldn't have had this conversation. But you get the best of both worlds, don't you? You're fortunate that way. Well, you know, I live in a small place, and if I get bored, I leave. There you go. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. Okay, I'll be back in two weeks, and then I come back, and it's like very peaceful here. It's, it's worked out great for me. So, isn't that interesting? The mm. same guy who pretty much ticked everybody off when he released that song, Pop Singer, never wanted to be no pop singer, mm -hmm. never wanted to write no pop song, who sounded really bitter with kind of the blessings that life had handed to him. And now, in this interview from 1999, he sounds way more zen about life. And he's finally kind of grown up and come to terms with the fact that he does this because he loves it. So why is he complaining so much? And it was really good to hear this clip. So what is a pop song? 
I mean, is Pink Houses a pop song? Well, is uh, I Need a Lover Who Won't Drive Me Crazy? Is that a yes. pop song? Well, exactly. I just And I, if it is, what's wrong with that? I know. And, you know, he just got really cranky. There were moments where <laughs> Malakamp's life where he got really cranky, but he's such an exceptional performer. But, you know, you just hope he looks after himself and you worry about his his health and you want him to be around for a long time. He's only 66 and he's still smoking a lot in a day. And he was on, uh, like when Letterman still had his show, he's on Letterman's show smoking away and Letterman's going, uh, dude, didn't you just have a heart attack like, like 10 years ago? And he's going, yeah, but I still smoke because I like it. Okay, just want to give a shout out to the DJs who did the interviews we just heard with John Mellencamp. Dale Smith did the interview from 1998, and Lee Eckley did the one from 1999. One more thing, I forgot to give a shout out last week to the guy who did a great job on the Nelly Furtado interview. That guy is Bruce Marshall. I messaged Bruce, and he was so pleased to hear from us, and he remembered what a great person Nelly was in that interview, one of his favorites too. Don't forget, you can catch up with that interview and every other episode of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app or on Apple Podcasts. This is Famous Lost Words with Tom Jokic and myself, Christopher Ward. And you know, this all started (laughs) a few episodes ago. Gonna find my baby, gonna hold... Keep going. Oh, yeah. Um, And uh, we just started talking about songs that were a little embarrassed that we think are good or that we like or that we find ourselves singing in the shower, you know, that kind of thing. So we thought, why not have a little segment called Songs You Hate to Love? (laughs) Not love to hate, but hate to love. So you're a little embarrassed when you have to tell somebody that, like my confession was was clear and open and heartfelt, I like We Built This City. Yeah, you see? Right. Uh, And Tom... Well, I despise that, and I went on a giant (laughs) rant about it, and I could do it again if you want me to. But in in the spirit of cooperation, he admitted that he liked Afternoon Delight. Right. Oh, oh, love Afternoon Delight. Yeah. (laughs) And embarrassed, because I actually know it's a bad song, but I still like it. There you go. Um, And also, remember, I actually confessed that I like Puppy Love by Donny Osmond, too. Because I had a cousin who wasn't really a cousin that I was kind of, uh, that I kind of had a crush on. But I think I was 10 at the time, and I think she was 11, so she was much older than me. Yeah, as soon as you get into double digits, though, you have to be responsible for your own taste. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about a couple others. I'm going to give you a confession. Here's a song that I love. Do you remember I Love the Nightlife? Oh, my God, by Alicia Bridges. I want some action. Adam, do you remember that I song? I live. I, I know want... that song. But it was sure. the weirdness of her voice. It was like, I love the nightlife. I love to boogie. Okay, let's hear that. Let's hear that. I love the nightlife. With her voice. I don't know, but I still Alicia like Alicia Bridges, I think that's 1977, 78. I love the nightlife. Wow. All right. I have one more confession, and then mm-hmm. I'm going to toss it over okay. to you. Okay. This is more recent. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the band, but the song was called The Humpty Dance. Oh, yeah. My name was Humpty. Spelled with the H. <laughs> I like my porridge lumpy. <laughs> my favorite is the, the end of it. He says... I'm sick with this. Like, he's just had enough of himself. That's funny. <laughs> is, that, that. is that Rex in effect? No. Is that who does that? No? Digital Underground. Wow. <laughs> that's a, that's, I would call them a one-hit wonder, but that's like a half-hit wonder. <laughs> no, that's great. I didn't expect your choices there. That's interesting. Yeah, I've, I've made my, my penance to the okay. gods of rock and roll. Tom, over to okay, you on well, this I've, I've got one right, right off the top of my head, and it's a song by a band that should have known better. I want to actually do a topic one day of 
hit songs by bands that is, are as far away from what that band originally was. Like, we talked about We Built This oh. City. You know how I feel about that song. And uh, No. Oh, God. Anyway. You so, mean like Fleetwood Mac, where they went from being one thing to being something completely different? Well, yes, no. That's not, that's not exactly what I mean. What okay. I mean is they record something that's so far away from who they were originally that, like, it's just a shameless pop sellout. I'll explain what I mean. Dr. Hook and the Medicine Show, cover of the Rolling Stone. Funny song, Sylvia's Mother, great song. And then eventually they go on to record the song, Sharing the Night Together. Adam, play that just for a sec. <laughs> Sharing the night together. Ooh, yeah. Sharing the night together. Ooh. Okay, here's the problem. Even though... I do not respect them for going that far for a hit record, though, so far away from their roots. I actually really like that song. So that's one of those songs that I hate to love. Be not ashamed, my friend. Okay, well, And thank also, you. I mean, it's not as if they had a mountain of credibility based on Sylvia's Mother to start with. But Sylvia's Mother was a cool song. It was written by Shel Silverstein. It was a cool song. I do think it was. It was, it was kind of mm. neat. It had a kind of hippie-ish vibe, and it went along with uh, Cover the Rolling Stone. Oh, boy. The look you're getting me. I'm, I think I might actually leave the room. Adam, why don't you take over right now and act, tell us about... Oh, yeah. we got This tell- is the, the man who has been silent, oh, yay, all these episodes. Yes. Our producer, Adam Karsh, That's right. is now being invited to join the madness that is coming to be known as the songs we hate to love. Okay, I think I have a good one. Okay, it, right, it better not be by the Grateful Dead because you love every single one of those songs. I love everything by the Grateful okay. Dead. All and right. Because I'm such a fan of the Grateful Dead, I'm embarrassed to say, you know, this yes. next song. Sure. I love Party in the USA by Miley Cyrus. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Adam. Adam, yeah. I have to tell you that song. I think we've. I think it's like nine years old now, which yes, is shocking. I know, um, but I got to tell the you, the age of I the people probably, that like it. That's, <laughs> <laughs> I probably love that song as much as you do. When it was on, when it came out, I would crank it every time. I just think it's an excellent song, and yes, it's Miley Cyrus, but by God, she sells that song. And that song was written, by the way, by Jesse J, who did a song called Price Tag and a bunch right. of other hits, and she's a good writer herself. Totally, but I. Absolutely love that song. I can't I could not agree with you more. No, it's a really, it's a good song. It's a perfect yeah. pop song. I love it. But I know the, the, those those teen idol girls. I mean, there's, there's there's some Britney stuff that that I I privately groove to. Like, sure. Oops, we, oops, I did it again. I, yeah. I'm sorry, I liked it. And, and listen, nobody can argue that Toxic oh, is no, not Toxic. a fantastic song. Tune. I love right. that song. Um, the most recent song that I really like, and I know it's a bit weenie, but um, <laughs> Delicate by Taylor yeah. Swift, great I think is fantastic. I like that hmm, one, yeah. too. You know we're, what? we're agreeing far too yes. much. <laughs> we need one more really controversial choice here. Anybody? Boy, oh boy. Let me think. Oh, I got one. Uh, 1977, I think. Shannon by Henry Gross. I like oh. that song. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's a weeper. Okay, Adam, just play the chorus for me, okay? Okay, that is awesome. And by the way, the Beach Boys are on that song. It sounds like that. It's true. And also, it's about a dog that swims out to sea, and it's a true story about a real dog, and I think it was owned by one of the Beach Boys. That's my understanding. So it's really heartfelt, too. I don't know if I'm (laughs) going to be able to get in the mood for the rest of this show now. Oh, I know. 
There we go. Thank you, Adam. Songs We Hate to Love. Thank you very much to our producer, Adam Karsh, for helping us out with that one. Okay, Christopher, let's talk about Katie Lang. We have a terrific interview from her from about 2004. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about interviewing Katie Lang. Because I've done it once. (laughs) And I've done it twice. And you've done it twice. And none of those occasions was it a great experience. Now, I just want to preface it. Not for her either. (laughs) And I just want to preface it by saying the interview that we're about to play, she's excellent in it. She's she's engaged. She's a lot of fun. She tells great stories. It's awesome. Um, I'm going to tell you first, I I interviewed her in about 1988. So she hasn't really broken through yet. She's still brand new. I think it's Angel with a Lariat. That's the name of that album. And she's still dressed up like a cowgirl. So we're going to pick her up. So a record company person and myself are in a car taking us to the place where we're being interviewed. I'm interviewing her for a magazine, not for the radio station, for a magazine. She does not want to be there. We're driving through the streets of Toronto, and she is like sullen and very unhappy. We drive by Maple Leaf Gardens, and she makes a remark about how roller derby used to be at Maple Leaf Gardens. And I said, oh, yeah, like Skinny Minnie Miller. And I mentioned one or two of the people who used to be in roller derby. Well, she (laughs) changes instantly. Now she's happy to know me. So it actually broke the ice. And the interview wasn't bad. It wasn't great, but it wasn't bad. But she was at least engaged because I connected with her. And there's something to be said for connecting with an artist. But often you don't have any time to do that. Often they're plopped down in front of you. You have your 7 to 12 minutes and you're off to the races and you can't, you can't make any connection. So I was lucky in that I did make the connection with her through roller derby of all things. I made absolutely no connection. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'd seen her live. Mm-hmm. I think it might have been the night before. And I think... I could be wrong on this, that I, th- I think it was her first national television interview. Wow. And um, I was blown away by her performance, so I was really excited to have her in the studio. And I thought, oh, this will be fun, because she's so much fun on stage. She's wacky. She just bounces all over the place. Yeah. And um, I thought, well, she'll bring that energy to an interview for sure. Wrong. And she was so shy, and, and I should have taken a more gentle approach but yes i thought well let's make this fun so i i treated her sort of like a pop star like a young pop star and yeah. I, I asked her a quiz like if you were reading i don't know 17 magazine or tiger beat like yes. what a katie lang interview would look like i yes. thought oh this is a funny idea sure it was not funny <laughs> i said you know like what's your favorite color and if you could invite three people for dinner oh, what would you make like one of those and she was just stony through that interview yeah it was my fault wow You know, it's funny because we do kind of hit on this with one of the clips that we're about to play for you about when it's all said and done, she just doesn't want any of that. She just wants to sing. And of course, when she sings, it's astonishing. But her her performance was kind of goofy and and manic and all over the place, especially at the beginning. So you do expect a little bit of that energy. And one of the classic mistakes we all make as interviewers is we, if someone is bringing low energy, we actually bring our own energy up to bring, to bring the entire energy of the interview up. So we, go, we start cranking it up. But then what happens is it telegraphs the dichotomy between the artist who's <sighs> really down here yeah. and... The interviewer who's really up here, hey, how you doing, right? And it, it makes it worse. We end up sounding like chipmunks. That's right. Yeah, that definitely is what happens. So 
We want to go back to 2004. She's um, promoting the release of the album Hymns from the 49th Parallel, where she covers the songs of Leonard Cohen, including Hallelujah, by the way, which would become her calling card even more than Crying, the Roy Orbison song. Mm -hmm. So she covers Leonard Cohen, Joni Mitchell, Neil Young, Ron Sexsmith, who she talks quite a bit about, and Jane Sibbery, who she really likes. So let's hear her talking about that album and those artists. They're all my favorite songwriters, and, you know, Jane is my favorite, you know, sort of my favorite peer. Um, and Ron Sexsmith is a really great example of how the tradition continues. I mean, he's, he definitely has that essence of Canadian in his songwriting. And... Uh, yeah, so I wanted to show how that it that it continues through the generations. But I try to do it with as much reverence as possible because I have nothing but absolute love and homage to the people that, that I covered. Yeah, you can tell she really loves those Canadian artists. She decided to do a tour with a symphony orchestra, which suited her just fine. That's another thing that I've been wanting to do for a long time because there's a there's a great benefit for a vocalist to be with a symphony first and foremost is the harmonic support that you get um and also you're playing in beautiful venues like the roy thompson hall you know and the orphan in vancouver and the place to arts in in montreal these are great great venues and the audience already knows kind of they already have a, a conceived idea that that it's going to be about singing which really is wonderful i don't have i don't have to worry about my dancing so much and secondly it really because of the so much of the the music is taken care of through the you know 40 or 50 musicians on stage it it allows me to focus on the narrative and the 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 very distilled emotion of a song so i can really settle down and just sing how i like to sing it's really important for me to walk onto stage and not necessarily be um someone projecting myself onto the audience but rather just kind of being the conduit for the synergy in the whole house between the musicians, the audience, the people who are working backstage and the crew and and even the bugs on the ceiling. I mean, it's it's to me it's about just being a part of what's happening and leaving yourself open to mistakes, leaving yourself open to what they yell at you. Um to me it's it's not about controlling the room or controlling the show, but just to sort of be in it. And um you know, I think that probably is the fundamental approach that I take to to performing. Oh, for sure. And she really does connect. You know, when you see KD, especially Latter-day KD, you know, from maybe um, the Constant Craving era on, um, I think that she can really command a room. And I've seen her in a couple of settings. I saw her on the Amnesty International tour. Oh, I saw with, that one. Yeah. yeah, that show at Maple oh, Leaf Gardens. She which, stole that show. She did. And that was with Crying, right? I think it was yeah, with Crying. Yeah, imagine stealing a show that has included mm, Bruce Springsteen, Peter Gabriel, Sting, That's and right. Nador, et cetera. Yes. Whew. That was the same show. Tracy Chapman, I think, was on that show as well. Oh, I don't remember. Okay. Anyway, so... So there is KD, and you know I think she's barefoot on the stage, and she lets it rip with crying, and she brings the house down. Seventeen thousand five hundred fans in Maple Leaf Gardens, and they're all on their feet. And this is three, four hours before Springsteen even takes the stage. 
By the way, he was magnificent that mm-hmm. night, but she was a very, very early highlight of that concert. So she broke out in the U.S. in the early 90s, and at that time, she's a media celebrity. In fact, she was on the very first cover of Entertainment Weekly. Really? Yes, she was, and I actually looked that up yesterday. She's got that sly look, uh, and she looks great. But that kind of attention isn't really her kind of thing. I'm not a diva, but I, I am pretty private. I don't like, you know, like on stage it's fine, but um, when I'm off stage, I kind of like to go away or blend in, you know, and not be. Yeah, I always say to my managers, what do you want me to do, sing or talk? <laughs> so I don't like to do a lot of promotion or a lot of, you know, a lot of the celebrity stuff anymore. I really, to me, the most important thing when it all boils down to it is how you sing live. And I think ultimately when all the technology comes, you know, when it all burns burns to hell, it's going to be about the person who can get up on stage and move an audience. And finally, we asked her, so where do you keep all of your awards, KD? <laughs> my first Juno is at my mom's house. My Grammys, I have no idea where they are. My gold records, I can't stand gold records. They looked so geeky. So, so there you go. Well, well, well. Cheesy gold records. Well, you know, she sold enough. And I like Katie Lang for her artistry enough to kind of forgive her the kind of pushback that she gives on the trappings of success. Right. And, and it's her right to live the kind of life that she wants and to perform in the way that she wants to. And I think she's more comfortable now than she's ever been um, based on what I've seen of her lately. You know, I'm, I don't follow her career very closely, but, you know, good for her. As you mentioned about Katie Lang, she is indeed true to her vision and she always has been. Um, my good friend, just full disclosure, Stephen Stone, and I helped a little, wrote a book mm-hmm. called Whatever It Takes. Now, Stephen was the executive producer of Degrassi, executive producer of the Juno Awards, worked with a lot of uh, significant Canadian artists like the Cowboy Junkies, like Tom Cochran, and Katie Lang. And he tells a wonderful story about the signing of her original record deal. First of all, how they chose the label is extraordinary. She's very instinctive, very gut-level in all of her decision-making. Anyway, the final thing came down when they had to sign the deal. Seymour Stein, the legendary guy who began Sire Records, yeah, and for sure. Madonna, yeah. and the Talking Heads, and all these people. Yeah. Um, so he's signing Katie Lang, and she's about to go off on a tour in the Orient. And they, you know, we don't have the computer means of sending you know, contracts back and forth, so they had to do it that night after her show on a boat in the harbor... <laughs> In Vancouver, in the captain's quarters, and they were like, oh, well, can you flick on the lights? The captain's like, oh, no, we can't have lights on in here because that's against the rules of the harbor. So they had to do the deal with a flashlight on the floor and signing, you know, each of, you know, 40 or 50 pages for each person. Wow. And that's that's where her record deal was done. I I did not do the story justice, but it's a great one. Well, you know, you told me to read that chapter uh, before we chatted about her because it is an excellent chapter. And by the way, that looks like a great book. Tell me the name of the book again. Whatever It Takes, Life Lessons from Degrassi and Elsewhere in the World of Music and Television. Written by? Stephen Stone. And you? No, I did not write it. I helped well, him. Okay. okay. I, I do research and that sort of thing. Oh, I see. Okay. But you do get a co-credit on that. On that He's book. very generous. Well, that's great. That's <laughs> great. And it looks fantastic. But yeah, so they're on the floor and it's like a corrugated floor. Like it's, yeah. it's not even a smooth surface that no. they're trying to sign this. You know, there's another story in that same chapter where she actually walks out of a meeting with one of the major record companies. Sony. Yeah. Sony. And she says, I'm not signing with them. And do you remember why? Yes. <laughs> This is great. <laughs> Tell the story. Why? 
Well, um, the meeting was set over lunch. Yeah. In, I think it started at 1230 or yeah, something. Yeah, in the like offices yeah. in New York City. Yeah. And she was there with Stephen and yeah. her manager. And they just jumped right in. They were very enthusiastic and talking plans and producers and the fact that they really wanted to sign her and they were going to get behind her and everything else. But they didn't offer any lunch. So they're in a, like an hour and a half meeting or something that starts at 1230. And they called it a lunch meeting. Yeah. And they, she leaves, and she says, "I'm not signing with them." And, and I, I, like her people are going, like, "Why not? This is a big company." She goes, "Yeah, if they're not going to feed us, they're not going to treat me right." Like, <laughs> that's so funny. I love that. She's the real deal for sure. So that's Katie Lang from 2004. Great stuff. You're listening to Famous Lost Words, and we are very grateful that you are. I'm Christopher Ward, and with me, ladies and gentlemen, that fountain of musical knowledge, Mr. Tom Jokic. Hello, and I'm here with Cool Song Facts. Now, Cool Song Facts is the name of my Twitter page, and I don't know if the name of it describes what it is. <laughs> I think it does. Yes, for sure. So I'm going to lay on some major knowledge right now. Okay. Some musical knowledge for you, stuff that you probably did not know. Okay. Well, I love that you never tell me these before we record. Absolutely so, not. Yeah. Absolutely not. Okay, so you know the song, Closing Time by Semi-Song. Closing Time. Oh, yeah. Great song. It actually is one of those songs, late 90s, early 2000s, that still holds up. It's a great song. So the guy who wrote it is named Dan Wilson. Right. Lead singer, Semi-Song, Closing Time, biggest hit. He co-wrote and co-produced Someone Like You by Adele. Oh. Right? And that is a completely different song. So he has made a lot of money just from those songs, but both songs are artistically... Great songs. Yeah, I, mm. I, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know the song, Just One Look, Doris Troy, 1963? Oh, man, I love that right. song. So, Just One Look, that's yeah, all yeah, it yeah. took. Um, so, Doris Troy, she also sang Backup on My Sweet Lord by George Harrison. Mm-hmm. And she sang Backup on Your Sylvain by Carly Simon. Nice. There you go. Boy, she was a great singer. Very, very good. Okay. Christina Aguilera, not surprisingly, when she was growing up, she would enter, you know, musical singing contest. Not surprising. She once finished second on Star Search. Okay? She was eight years old at the time. Wow. Did I tell you there's a video of her at age 10 singing Black Velvet on, on oh YouTube? Oh, my God. That's great. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. of course, if you're just getting caught up, Christopher is the writer of Black Velvet by Alana Miles. And so that song obviously has a lot of meaning to, <laughs> to he and I. I it, it blew me away. Well, first of all, seeing her sing it and at the age of 10 sounding really good. That's great. Well, the, the song that she sang on Star Search when she was eight was Whitney Houston's Greatest Love of All. <sighs> but it's hard to imagine that she was only 10 when Black Velvet came out. You know? There you go. That'll age you. Okay, Christopher. Oh, you want the- a cool song fact from me, don't you? <laughs> you know, I'm not as good at this, I have to say. I, I don't know why. Things don't stick to me in this department for some reason. But there is a story that I love, and it's a Paul McCartney story, of course. He is having dinner with Dustin Hoffman and his wife, and Linda's, wow. Linda's there. And Dustin Hoffman is saying, so how do you actually write songs? How do you go about it? And Paul says, oh, I don't know. They just kind of come to me. And Hoffman says, well, can you write about anything? McCartney says, yeah, just anything at all. So Dustin Hoffman pulls out a copy of Time magazine detailing Picasso's Last Night on Earth, where he, to a group of his friends, stood up, raised his glass, and said the immortal words, drink to me, drink to my health, you know I can't drink anymore. He went off to his studio. He went to bed. He died. Whoa. McCartney oh, has wow. a guitar with him, conveniently enough. And Dustin Hoffman says, so 
could you write a song about this? And Paul goes, yeah, I guess so. Picks up his guitar, starts drumming, and goes, drink to me, drink to my health, etc. And hence the song that, of course, is now on uh, the uh, Band on the Run album. Wow. Oh, that, by the way, great. that chronicle, by the way, there's a, there's a long edition of uh, Band on the Run. I think it's the 25th anniversary, and Dustin Hoffman tells that story oh, much better than I do, so go great. check it out. That's excellent. Okay, Christopher, I want to see if you can guess the answer to this. Mutt Lang produced the number two selling album of the 1980s and the number one selling album of the 1990s. Do you want me to guess? Yes. One of them's got to be ACDC. Right. And it's the big album. Back in Black. Yep. And Because I don't think he did the previous album. No, I don't think so either. Okay, this, and yeah. the next one has to be Def Leppard. And you're going to be kicking yourself. The Cars? He did Heartbeat no. City, didn't he? No. Well, he may have. Okay, you're going to kick yourself. <laughs> Brian Adams. No, everybody listening right now is losing their mind that you're not getting this. Okay? <laughs> okay. okay. I know I don't mean to embarrass you. But you have to think of maybe, was he married to any one of those artists? <laughs> was he married to Brian Ar- Adams? Artistically only. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest selling album of the 90s all was right. Come On Over by... Shania Twain. Right. Okay. <laughs> Adam, our producer Adam is losing his mind because A, he got it right. you knew, didn't and- <laughs> you? Yeah, you were just waiting for me to fall on my face. There you go. But that is really cool. Mutt Lang produced the number two selling album of the 80s, uh, ACDC's Back in Black, and the number one selling album of the 90s, Shania Twain's Come On Over. Great stuff there. Okay, one more. The producers of I Want You Back by the Jackson 5 were worried that Michael wouldn't be able to hit the high notes on that song, and he did it on the first try. There you go. You can hear him doing it right there. Great stuff. There you go. Cool song facts. Thank you, Tom. Follow me on Twitter at Cool Song Facts. Follow us on Twitter at Famous Lost Pod or on Facebook at Famous Lost Words. Okay, Christopher, we have a few extra minutes here. Uh, you remember when we talked about Stephen Stills recently? We, we had a full interview with him. Yes. And, uh, and you were terrorized. That's I was terrorized and somewhat traumatized by him uh, coming after me. But it all worked out in the end. But one of the great stories I got from him, which we did not run in that interview, is the story behind the hit For What It's Worth by Buffalo Springfield. Here he is telling that story. Well, I was driving back from... Uh, I was driving uh, with a friend going out to Japan Canyon to a little... Uh, you know, folk music jam session kind of thing where we all sat around with guitars and smoked cigarettes and and drank coffee and beer and whatever anybody could afford. And uh, I drive by and we're turning left to go over Laurel Canyon to get to the freeway. And there's like all these kids around this bar that happened to be on a little island in the middle of uh, uh, Fairfax and Crescent Heights. And uh, I forget the name of it, but... Uh, and they were basically closing the bar because the city wanted to make that island a traffic thing, you know. So it's a tradition I know from New Orleans is they were having, so if you have a favorite hang and they're going to close it down or tear it down, you have a funeral for the bar. So they're having a funeral for the bar. There's about 5,000 people. The place only held 200. So basically they're all around the street, but basically they're just hanging. There's no, it's not the 90s, it's the 60s. It's more like Canada. 
<laughs> back then. They, you know, they, there was no throwing of beer bottles and fighting or any of that stuff. So well, I come to think of it, it's not like Canada. Uh, <laughs> the national pastime is fighting, or it used to be anyway. Um, and uh, but there's all of Miriardi's finest, you know, across the street, uh, lined up like uh, with their brandly newly trained, you know. The, the riot squad and they proceeded to march into the crowd and wade in and beat the hell out of everybody you know and uh, and uh, you know I, I lived in Latin America the last time I'd seen anything like that the government changed hands three days later mm-hmm. so um, so that's basically was the genesis of that song mm-hmm. and I was also thinking about the boys in the, on the line uh, over in Vietnam. Wow, that's really interesting. So he has so much in mind when he's writing that, you know, there's something happening here, what it is ain't exactly clear, man with a gun wow. over there. So there's this like, almost like riot in the middle of the of this street and he's, you know, channeling kind of the vibe of that, the us versus them and he's also thinking about Vietnam. Great stuff for what it's worth by Buffalo Springfield and Stephen Stills. Oh, one more thing about that song. Yes. That opening riff. Adam, play that opening riff. The guitar... So, you know the sound at the beginning, the, the, the just the single guitar notes? That's supposed to indicate a siren. Ah. Very slow. So that's knew? Neil Young doing a kind of siren-y thing, but very, hmm. uh, kind of a, a psychedelic, hazy version of a siren. Man, there were a few rock stars in that band. There sure was. I mean, Richie Frey, who went on to form Poco. Mm-hmm. Jim Messina, who went on to form Loggins and Messina. A guy named Neil... Some yeah, some young guy named Neil. <laughs> Steve Stills, wow. It was like a super group in the making. Well, that does it for another episode of Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Special thanks to our producer, Adam Karsh, who got a lot of airtime on this episode. I'm not sure I like that. And also, <laughs> and also our executive producer, Rob Farina. Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next time. <laughs>